HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Just a quick announcement before we get started. The episode of Back Bar that you're about to hear originally aired as Bar None in 2020. Cheers. It's 10.59 p.m. on August 4th, 1914. How did it? How could it have happened? What were we all like five days ago? People were angry, but not serious. And now the sound of real war waved like wireless round our heads, and the whole world was listening. In one minute, Britain's ultimatum to Germany will expire, unanswered. We sat smoking cigarettes in silence. Some went out, others came in. Nothing was said. The clock on the mantelpiece hammered out the hour, and when the last beat struck, it was as silent as dawn. We were at war. Margot Asquith, her husband the Prime Minister, the people of Great Britain, and their neighbours across the English Channel are caught up in a continent barreling headfirst toward war. The next day, posters go up across the UK urging young men to enlist. One hundred years later, why they went to war in the first place is still debated. Was it a rogue state aiding and abetting an assassination plot? Was it a fading global power hellbent on one last war of conquest? Or was it something bigger and fundamentally broken, a global failure of diplomacy to stop the slow-motion collapse of peace and decency. How did the house that Europe built collapse in on itself in just five weeks and leave four years of war behind? I'm Greg Benson, and this is Bar None. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. Learn more at diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a butter egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st slash hrn. This week on Meet and 3, we dedicate our stories to elders, grandparents, and family members who came before us. Some people called on the phone. What time is your appointment? Mine's 2.45. Our friend, the dentist, he, he was 3.30. And it was like a social event. It's a small island. A lot of them I knew when I was a kid. So it was, you know, to really help them feel like they they weren't alone. It's partly this communal nature of food and so it can operate as a bridge um, not just between 
neighbors and friends, but also between the living and the dead. Listen to Meet in 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. As always, we're talking about history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. Today, we're looking at the French 75, and I gotta say, I like talking about this drink because it's part of a category of cocktails I like to call did-you-know drinks. And something is a did-you-know drink when it's a cocktail that most people, if they know anything about it, know exactly one thing, and it's always the same thing every time. And in this case, it's that the French 75 was named after a big, scary gun that was used in World War I. And I guess that means they know it's French, which I suppose is a second thing, but whatever. But what a lot of people don't know, what in fact I didn't even really know until I started writing this piece, is just how much conflict and controversy there's been at the heart of this little drink. Is it better with gin or with cognac? Do you serve it in a flute or do you serve it on the rocks? And what exactly is the original recipe for the French 75 anyway? So, to better understand this drink, I asked Kelly Rivers and Zara Bates, two people who argue about it for a living. All right, so we have the, 19, uh, the 1915 recipe um, that is very quite boozy in equal proportions of gin and brandy are best friends in this cocktail. There's not a lot of inner fighting. It's true. It gets ugly. It next, gets ugly from there. The We're holding hands. <laughs> and boy, does it ever get ugly. This hey, is how, hey, no, no, except, no, no, except no. it wasn't a total horrible disaster. It was. I would much say this would be more like. I would say this would be much more like Empire Strikes Back. I think Empire Strikes Back is next. And a little silly. Oh, you course you uh, would. Well, it's a lot darker. <laughs> <laughs> we obviously do not enjoy this battle whatsoever. <laughs> Kelly comes to us from Sipsmith Gin. Zara is with Cavassier Cognac, and together they're the duo behind Get Off the Fence, which is a traveling program that explores the conflict and controversy that's baked into the DNA of the French 75. But the funny thing about this drink is that for all the back and forth about the best way to make it and the best way to serve it, the original recipe, the very first one that we have in print, is actually kind of harmonious. But if you want to go back into the shared um, story of it, especially coming from a story of gin and cognac, you have to go back to the first uh, recipe of this, which was in 1915. It was the first time that we saw the French 75, um, and I'll let, I'll let cognac talk about the name, which was... So, Soisons which means... French 75. 75 in French. Um, it was the first time that we saw the, this recipe. Um, and it's not it's not like anything that you we would recognize today as a French 75. Um, this was the first time um, that we had spirits. It was had grenadine as the sweetener and then water. And those spirits were going to be gin and brandy. That is right. The first French 75 ever to appear in print in the Washington Herald was a split-base gin-brandy fusion with almost zero resemblance to the bubbly citrusy drink that we know today. So the recipe, if you want to then take it into what modern-day proportions would be, would be three-quarters of an ounce of gin. Uh, London was preferred at the time. Uh, three-quarters of an ounce of, of brandy. Cognac is our preferred method. Um, then you had a half ounce, or sorry, a quarter ounce of grenadine and a quarter ounce of water. And then it was stirred, and it was put in a small uh, sherry glass, or a Nick and Nora is the size, and then it was garnished with the lemon peel. And that was 
the first instance of a French 75. So no citrus, no bubbles. That sounds brutal. This 50-50 split with a frankly contentious sounding mixture of ingredients mirrors the balance of power on the continent in the summer of 1914. Europe is a series of crisscrossing, intersecting, sometimes even contradicting lines, a back and forth of alliances and promises and honor agreements that by the beginning of the 20th century has ensnared all of the continent's major power brokers. And in the middle of all of that is Serbia, this tiny nation that's tired of being swept up in the ambitions of its bigger neighbors. So while Austria-Hungary and Russia and the Ottoman Empire plot the expansion of their territory around the tiny kingdom, the Serbian government is quietly making unsavory alliances, including the paramilitary terrorist organization, the Black Hand. Then, on June 28th, the Austro-Hungarian Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife are touring Sarajevo, and their driver takes a wrong turn into a side street. That's where a 19-year-old Yugoslav nationalist Gavrilo Princip jumps onto the footboard of the car and shoots the couple at point-blank range. I am the son of peasants, and I know what is happening in the villages. That is why I wanted to take revenge, and I regret nothing. With Europe's diplomats walking on eggshells to maintain the peace, one man's desire for revenge sets the table for war. That afternoon, the Archduke and his wife are dead. Austria-Hungary comes after the Kingdom of Serbia for a pound of flesh. And a little over a month later, Europe is at war. I could use a domino metaphor here and point to this as the first in a chain of happenings that ultimately brought about the advent of World War I, but I'm not going to do that for a couple reasons. First, I'm just not that cliche of a writer. And second, it doesn't feel appropriate. There's a certain inevitability that's baked into the domino metaphor, this preordained sense that when you tip over the first one, the next one will go down and then the next one and the next one and the next one and so on and so forth until the last brick falls like it was meant to be. But there was nothing inevitable about World War I. To me, the events leading up to the Great War are like watching a center fielder bobble an easy fly ball, this textbook catch that they somehow managed to drop again and again and again, always just a hair's breadth away from holding on to it, to making the out and getting out of the game, and yet they fail to grasp it all the same. Gavrilo Princip didn't see it that way. He denied responsibility for touching off World War I until the day he died in prison in 1918. The World War would not have failed to come independent of me. I cannot believe that the war was a consequence of the assassination. I cannot feel myself responsible for the catastrophe. True or not, he's right about one thing. The start of World War I isn't any one man's burden to bear, not when so many other people failed to stop it. And four years later in Paris, the uneasy truth between gin and cognac is starting to unravel too. This is going to be the 1922 recipe, which was adapted from Harry's Bar in Paris. So even the Paris like gin, I swear. It's just that that's where everyone was at the time. Yeah. <laughs> With the 20s roaring in the background, Europe's bartenders were finally able to make the drink the way they always envisioned it when times were scarce. And by the time Robert Vermeer wrote it down in cocktails, how to mix it, they were ready to say goodbye to the lemon peel in favor of something that was a little bit more satisfying. So this is, um, again, 
We have gin and brandy, um, but gin is taking the forefront. So we have twice as much London dry gin mm -hmm, than we do have of the brandy. And then we actually have a first time we're seeing juice as part of the recipe as opposed to just kind of a if you have it around. So if we take this recipe in modern days, we have a one and a half ounces of London dry gin. We have three quarters of an ounce of cognac. We have a quarter of an ounce of lemon juice and then a bar spoon of, of grenadine as the sweetener. Did you catch that? Second time out and the French 75 still doesn't have any bubbles. The 1922 incarnation had a long way to go before it became the drink we all know today. But it was very much a cocktail for its day. And this is like a great indicator that the war has been now been over for four years. Rationing is definitely has stopped. So they know that everybody can be taken care of. So we can actually go in and say, okay, yes, you got a little bit of lemon before. You may have gotten a slice, but this is how we imagined it to show well. Boozy, citrusy, and served in a coupe after being stirred, not shaken, I have a tough time seeing this make it out of any menu R&D sessions today. But, like I said, it was great for the time. It was a liquid symbol of French and English cooperation for a continent that was happy that the war was behind it. Eight years earlier, that same war seems almost inconceivable. But as Serbian businesses are looted by an angry mob in Sarajevo, a hastily called session of the Austro-Hungarian cabinet is underway. All the Joint Empire's decision-makers are there, including the Army's Chief of Staff, Konrad von Hetzendorf. We have to take advantage of the first opportunity to attack before this most vulnerable opponent gets enough arms, which could result in the disintegration of the monarchy. He has a lot of words for his fellow leaders that night, but those aren't them. That was a letter to the Emperor seven years earlier. It's one link in the Chief of Staff's obsession with crushing the rising nationalist movements to the south and making the monarchy a superpower again. Serbia must lose its independence and has to be forced to hand over her fate to the Habsburgs. That was from a memo in 1912. The next year, he formally requested war with Serbia no less than 25 times. The year after that, a Serb climbed onto a car and shot the presumptive heir to the throne in the neck. Von Hetzendorf sees Austria as a declining power whose only path back to greatness is war with Serbia. He's even willing to risk an all-out war with Russia to accomplish his goal. The cabinet doesn't give him the immediate invasion he wants that night. They settle on a half-hearted half-measure instead. But elsewhere in Vienna, support for the war Van Hetzendorf fantasizes about is quietly growing. As the power brokers of the empire wonder how they could turn the assassination to their advantage, a foreign emissary watches angry Serbs march the streets in Belgrade. We are now looked on as the enemy. For many years, hatred has been sown in Serbia. The crop has sprung up and the harvest is murder. Meanwhile, the British Royal Navy performs joint maneuvers as part of a friendly visit with their German counterparts. The cultural links binding these two nations are strong, and the friendship between their navies is one of them. As the Brits sail home, the two admirals exchange messages back and forth. One of them reads, Comrades in the past, and always. Historically, there's always been a place for the human element um, in warfare that, that can really bring 
break down often the barriers between both sides. Researching the story, I kept sticking on this one anecdote about the British and the German navies hanging out and shooting the shit and playing tug-of-war with one another, and then being sent to kill each other just five weeks later. I kept wondering what that was like, firing on people who could just as easily have been your friends, not just in another life, but like a month and a half earlier. So I called the military blogger who writes under the name Angry Staff Officer, and I did it on a really shitty connection, so sorry about that, because I wanted to get some perspective. He was an army engineer in Afghanistan, and he's a huge gin fan. But as much as we talked about distillation and botanicals, our conversation kept circling back to what it meant to be a person, an actual person, and fight a war. So you can, through shared interactions over basic things like food, alcohol, tobacco, um, soldiers from both sides can meet and enjoy their shared humanity, see their shared humanity, and that helps um, that helps make a reconciliation after a war easier. Um, it can also help uh, bring a, an, an end to a conflict faster if, if people see uh, shared humanity. If there's zero humanity at all, however, um, there's nothing really to stop uh, nations waging war. When I look at the days leading up to World War I, I can't help but wonder, if Europe's great powers leaned into their shared humanity instead of shying away from it, what then? But, while German and British sailors are eating and drinking and smoking together, something more sinister is happening between the Kaiser and the government of Austria-Hungary. Wilhelm II, it seems, is just as preoccupied as his Austrian counterparts with his fading influence on the world stage. The Kaiser disdains diplomacy, is utterly convinced of his own infallibility, and is bound and determined not to go down in history as the face of German decline. So, like an old grifter going in for one last big score, he agrees to back a war with Serbia. Even if Russia joins the fight. Even if France joins. No matter what. Should a war between Austria-Hungary and Russia be unavoidable, Austria-Hungary can rest assured that Germany your old faithful ally, will stand at your side. Without German support, the warmongers in Vienna wouldn't have the Jews to take on Serbia and Russia in armed combat, no matter how bad they want to. Kaiser Wilhelm doesn't even need to talk Austria-Hungary out of an attack. A simple thanks but no thanks would stop the conflict in its tracks. Instead, he issues what has since become known as the blank check, and the cloud of war hanging over Europe gets that much darker. As for the French 75, things were getting darker in Kelly and Zara's battle, too. Just slightly differently. You remember earlier when she referred to one particular iteration of this drink as the Empire Strikes Back? Well... Join us, come to the dark side. <laughs> Here we come back with way more cognac. Here's the thing. When you get enough nerds sitting around a table drinking gin, the history of the French 75 starts to track pretty closely with the events of a certain high-stakes armed conflict. Just this one a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So, and follow our logic here, if the 1915 recipe is the prequel trilogy, rough around the edges, but necessary, and the 1922 recipe is the well-aged beloved original, the 1926 recipe by renowned Jazz Age bartender Harry McEllen has no choice but to strike back. He definitely goes um, at a higher level of cognac, um, reverses what was done in uh, the 1922, uh, 
Um, but to do that tip of the hat, to make sure that honoring what happened before, a little bit of absinthe is added here. Mm. So when we talk about a little, it's a dash of absinthe. It is. It's just to like bring back those notes, like to remind you that botanicals are here. We're drawing out the botanicals that were in the London Dry. What we're aiming to do is make sure there's balance between these two worlds. First published in Harry's ABCs of Mixing Cocktails, this recipe comes out to one and a half ounces of cognac, three quarters of an ounce of gin, and a quarter ounce of grenadine with just a dash of absinthe. It's an interesting step in the drink's evolution, to be sure, considering this is arguably even further removed from the recipe that we have today. This is stirred again, um, again, the preferred method of making drinks, um, and then put into a coop, coop, sorry, coop with a discarded lemon peel. So this is where the, the, the fruit shows up. And still no bubbles. Still no bubbles. So the bubbles are the Ewoks. Yes, they are, because it makes everyone happy. <laughs> I don't know if I... Ewoks don't make me happy. Back on Earth, there's another empire looming over the story of the French 75, although this one is decidedly much more real than its galactic counterpart. In fact, the threat of intervention by Russia is just about the only thing that keeps Austria-Hungary from rolling into Serbia before the Archduke is even in the ground. The Russian Empire sees itself as the protector of all Orthodox Christians throughout Europe and the world. Serbia might be small, and it might be unruly, but it fits the criteria, and Russia is determined to back it up. Now, Austria-Hungary knows this, and the Russians know that they know this, and the decision-makers in Vienna know that Russia knows that they know, which, of course, leads to another series of bullshit half-measures by squeamish statesmen whose primary objective is to piss off the lowest number of people. Since Austria-Hungary is structured as a joint empire, both sides need to be on board with a declaration of war. The Austrians are all for it, but the Hungarian prime minister hesitates, wary of touching off, well, a world war, and so they compromise. Austria-Hungary will send an ultimatum to the Serbian government, demanding that they disavow all anti-Austro-Hungarian propaganda, remove anyone suspected of circulating it from office, and allow Austria to direct the trials of the accused assassins. In other words, Serbia has to hand over the keys to its sovereignty. It's designed to be rejected and trigger the war the Austrians want from the get-go, and yet the constant delays in their plan give the larger nations a chance to observe the proceedings. Observe and mobilize. In Britain, the Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey is trying to nip this conflict in the bud. The problem is, he's going about it in the most British way imaginable, which is to say very, very politely. I said to the German ambassador that as long as there was only a dispute between Austria and Serbia alone, I did not feel entitled to intervene but that directly it was a matter between Austria and Russia. It became a question of the peace of all Europe, which concerns us all. Yeah, so basically, mind your own business, Germany, and we'll mind ours. Even though Britain has been growing closer to France and Russia over the past few years, it still has no appetite for getting caught up in a conflict on the continent. Gray and the other British politicians try to head off the war before it starts, but their tone is so passive and removed, it comes off like placating a bunch of bickering children more than heading off a truly existential threat. And the stakes only get higher after the break.
Remember last summer? It seems like ages ago, right? But remember how excited we all were that in the middle of a year that didn't go the way that any of us wanted it to, at least you could walk up to your favorite bar, order a cocktail, and say, you know what? I'm going to have this one to go. Well, no matter what happens next, that feeling is here to stay, which is great if you like drinking drinks. I certainly do on occasion. But if you're making drinks, it can be tricky. Like, I know this drink tastes great now, but what about in a half hour after it's home in somebody's apartment? How much will the ice change the drink? What about the garnish? And how do I make sure that it arrives at just the right temperature? Fortunately, Diageo Bar Academy has you covered. With their vast array of resources, they equip bartenders, servers, managers, and hospitality professionals with the insights, stories, and tools to be better consistently, raising the bar on industry standards. Tune into their articles and masterclasses to learn how to build a successful delivery and takeaway program in a digital world. Whether you're a bartender or a bar owner, Diageo Bar Academy has you covered with easy-to-access resources to help you plan, batch, deliver, and even market your to-go offerings digitally. And the best part? It's free. That's right. Free. It doesn't get better than that. So go to diageobaracademy.com to learn more. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. And if you see me out and about this summer with a drink in my hand, you'll know where I learned to make it extra tasty. Cheers. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based customers into your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier, with no cholesterol, and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and French toast. There's also frozen, pre-baked, folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres called Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says, so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st slash hrn. Listeners, I want to tell you about some mighty fine spirits that are coming out of the state of Texas. I discovered them at a Tales of the Cocktail tasting room two years ago, and you know that I wouldn't be here telling you about them if I didn't think they were worth telling about. Violet Crown Spirits are the first people ever to produce absinthe in the Lone Star State, which would be impressive in and of itself, but it's doubly so because they're making two of them. Their classic emerald absinthe layers fresh-cut hay and meadow-sweet notes over a rich foundation of black licorice, and their opal absinthe is a bright and fascinating addition to any bar. And don't sleep on their jasmine and elderflower liqueurs or the midnight marigold tomorrow either. Trust me. 
To learn more and find out where they're near you, visit violetcrownspirits.com and tell them that I sent you. Cheers. Britain's low, soothing overtures notwithstanding, tensions on the continent are poised to bubble over. And speaking of which... All right, so... We've gone 1915, we got 1922, we got 1926. Are we ready for Bubbles? Yes. All right, we're going to go to Bubbles. In the classic cocktail book, Here's How, American bartender Judge Jr. gives us a recipe with gin, powdered sugar, lemon juice, and... Lo and behold, a dry, sparkling champagne. Finally. Now, after all that, we have a cocktail that actually looks like something we're used to. It's a gin-based sour that you shake and serve with bubbles. But for a while there, what kind of bubbles they were? Well, that all depended on where you were and, frankly, who was asking. We're talking about uh, who was drinking the French 75, especially in Europe. Because, again, named after uh, this, this weapon that was used in Europe during the war. It, during In the British... Uh, army and mostly into the Royal Navy, there was, when they were docked in Portsmouth, um, basically they would have an officer club. Um, so it was one room in, in the, the, the base, and certain days of the week, officers could drink there. And then the rest of the week, anybody could drink. The officers club wasn't a different venue from the place where the <clears throat> commoners drank. What was different was what was offered. For example, the officers drank everything on ice, and I mean everything, whether it showed better that way or not, because it was expensive. So when it came time to drink a French 75, the officers were drinking something a little different than the hoi polloi. Gin was much more readily available in England, where brandy was a little bit more elite. So again, we're talking about this, these officers drinking to elevate themselves. This is where you would see brandy French 75s, was in the officers' clubs. Yes, the aristocracy generally, like, it was for um, brandy, especially because the cost, because a phylloxera was happening, the costs were prohibitive. They definitely, in the officers' club, would have that, but they wouldn't necessarily have soda, which is what would be available for um, the, the GI to actually drink. But the officers did have champagne, so instead of using soda to fill it and lengthen it, that's when the champagne was added. So slightly difference between a Collins and a French 75. Now, were the British officers drinking brandy and champagne, not so much because they liked it, but because it was expensive and thus other people couldn't have it? I'm not saying that. And for the record, Kelly and Zara aren't saying that either. What I am saying is imagine a member of the landed gentry who lives in Great Britain circa 1930-1940 and drinks at the officers club and draw your own conclusions from there. But putting aside questions of who drank what and what cost more and who's an entitled snob, it's still a little weird that the bubbles, which are this iconic part of this drink, were really late to the party. It begs the question, why do they show up in the first place? And in the end, it all comes down to something totally separate from taste or consistency or even status. It comes down to the shape of the glass. Remember when we were talking about the actual weapon? When they decided to start adding champagne was not because of the ingredient that they wanted to add, it was because they wanted to replicate 
what was put into the gun of the artillery weapon. And this replicated that actual shape and size. Shape and size of the bullet. But if you put all of those ingredients together, even with ice, it would only fill up the glass halfway. So they needed something to fill that, and that's why and when bubbles were added. So the British aristocracy liked it because it looked kind of like a gun. Go figure. It's worth remembering, though, that this wasn't just any gun. This was the end-all, be-all of artillery combat. This thing could shoot a plane out of the sky, which for a society that hadn't even invented penicillin yet was a hell of an accomplishment. It was so impressive, the Allied propaganda machine spun this narrative that just one was all it took to win the war. To them, it was more than a gun. It was an engineering marvel that could single-handedly take out every single one of your enemies in one fell swoop. While we chatted, angry staff officer told me a little about how advanced and how deadly this gun actually was. And uh, they get so good at firing it that they can fire, they can do what's called fire by recoil, or fire on the recoil, which is as the gun is sliding back from the, the explosion of the shell within the breech that's inside the gun, and the gun tube is sliding back on its rails, and as they're ejecting the old shell casing, they would ram home the new case, the new shell, and the force of the gun going forward back again into its carriage would force it down on the primer, the shell would go off, the projectile would go out, and then the whole process would begin again, which is incredibly dangerous because you're moving really, really fast and, like, one thing slightly mistimed means you're going to lose your thumb. Uh, um, but you could basically get off something like 20 or 30 shots a minute um, with an artillery piece, which thing you want to do if you've been drinking. <laughs> there you have it. Unprecedented, unchallenged, unbeatable. And yet, if you Google a picture of it, which you really should do, it looks a little, I don't know, anachronistic, which is a nice way of saying silly. It's got this big, formidable barrel, which looks straight out of one of those countless History Channel documentaries about artillery. But on the bottom end, it's got these wooden wheels that look like someone took them off of a stagecoach. It's scary, but also kind of charming in the way that I imagine whatever the 1930s version of steampunk probably was. I get this feeling looking at it, this sense of this? This is the unstoppable killing machine we've all heard so much about. In a way, it's a stand-in for the entire European conflict because it's so well, dumb. This big phallus on top of the merry-go-round wheels couldn't possibly shoot down a plane, right? And these nations, the one that made all these honor agreements they hoped they'd never have to actually back up, they wouldn't send millions of their sons to their deaths, right? Right? I almost wonder if it's this kind of escapist thing, because as you said, it's very much a product of all of these cultures coming together to fight one of the most horrific conflicts we've ever waged as a species. And the thing that comes at the thing that's very much born of and even named after this war looks just elegant as all hell. <laughs> And right. Well, I mean, it, it does come out of Paris, after all. So that is true. And Paris wasn't totally dead at the time. <laughs> but yeah, no, it is. It's uh, it's kind of incongruous when you think about it. It's and I, and I would hazard that probably most people who drink it don't don't kind of give it the 
that extra thought of, man, this is uh, this is a really nice little drink named after a killing machine. At this point in our story, in all of these stories, it suffices to say that common ground is at a premium. Understanding, compromise, they're all fading away, which is why it's nice to know that there's one thing, at least, that everybody can agree on. And here's the thing. No matter how playful uh, Zara and I get about the debate on what is the classic uh, French 75, one thing we will always agree on is how it's served. On ice, please. On ice. These two, and for that matter, a lot of other people who've written about the French 75 in the past 10 years, all seem to agree on this one thing. This drink is always, 100% of the time, better on ice. So... So where did, where did the flute come from? The dreaded flute. The so French cocktail dreaded flute. It showed up in like the mid-1980s. It had not been there all the time. It was an attempt to actually go back to that classic time period of what was like, oh, it was served in a champagne glass, but not knowing that that meant that it was actually served in a coupe, because back then, that was a champagne glass. Now, far be it from me to talk shit on the champagne glass as a drinking vessel. Many, many more qualified people than I am have already done that. What I will say is this. If you make a French 75 to modern specifications and a champagne flute, Not only do you have absolutely no room for ice, which means your drink doesn't evolve or improve or develop texture, but you've only got about an inch at best to top your creation up with champagne. Bartenders in the 20th century knew this, and that's why they served it from the 20s all the way to the 80s in a Collins glass, which begs the question, why did we forget about that? Well, I mean, think about what was going on in the 1980s. I mean, greed is good. If you if you go back and look at movies, if you look at um, ad campaigns, everything was this this luxury. I mean, we had elongated crystal like champagne flutes that were like about long as a baby's arm. Like it was it was just the opulence of, of things. That's right, everybody. We're stuck drinking delicious drinks out of shitty glassware because greed is good. <laughs> greed. It's kind of like Ambition's ugly cousin, don't you think? At this point, it's July 25th. Serbia rejects Austria-Hungary's ultimatum. Edward Grey tries to mediate for peace, cobbling together this last-minute coalition of theoretically uninvolved parties, but his efforts are too little, too condescending, too late. Austria-Hungary mobilizes its forces, and our first two nations are at war. The net of alliances crisscrossing Europe is tightening. In St. Petersburg, the Tsar calls off his planned counterattack, only to flip-flop back onto the offensive the next day. The military support Serbia had always counted on arrives as planned. On August 1st, the German ambassador asks the Russian minister three times to call off the attack. And every time, the answer is no. More surely than slowly, the war is escalating. Now I get the shape of the glass. I get the rah-rah jingoism and even the lowly but unassailably human satisfaction of sipping on a drink named after the thing that kicked somebody else's ass. But in spite of all the thinking, all the reading, all the interviews and all the research, there's still one thing about the French 75 that I still don't get. The name. There had to be more of a reason to call this fundamentally playful and relaxing thing by the same name as a very efficient instrument of death. As we wrapped up, I floated this notion past Zara and Kelly. 
And so you would have your, your local your local local and you would walk in and people knew your name and you could inquire about their family and mm-hmm. they could inquire about yours and you could just commiserate a little bit together. Um, and I think the, the, the drinks kind of just took a little bit of the edge off. And I think the bartender was probably aware of what was happening around them and decided, you know what, I need to like pay attention to this moment and I have to make this drink for them. Yeah, and I and I also think about it is the naming the naming of the drink again. This is With just hope. yeah. Yeah, th- there's hope in it, and it's also like you know, propaganda was a very big tool. Oh, such a big tool. And so this was also part of that marketing of like we're gonna win, we're gonna we're gonna come out victorious. So we're gonna name this thing after the thing that will again. It was it would t- it turned the tides of war was its monarch this this mm-hmm. this gun, and it, so. Why not name a drink after it? So, you know, if someone's, like, talking about how things aren't looking so well, have this drink that's going to turn the tides of war. And come and support by having this drink. Like, buy this because you're buying a little piece of hope. It's August. Germany is at war. And now it has to act fast. With Russian forces mobilizing against them in the east, Berlin has to move quickly against another threat in the west. France. Despite French troops drawing back and telegraphing loud and clear that they do not want a fight, the Kaiser's military plans are absolute. France has to be brought to heel and fast before they can unite with their Russian allies to encircle and crush the German forces. France has to be destroyed. But to do that, German armies have to travel through Belgium, whose neutrality Britain has sworn to protect. Feeling like they don't have a choice, Edward Grey Prime Minister Asquith and the rest of the British government issue an ultimatum to Germany. If you invade Belgium, there will be war. When I was a kid, I remember there was this house in my neighborhood. The chain link fence around it seemed kind of unnecessary since the grass clearly hadn't been mowed in years. It was tall enough to keep anybody interested out, which nobody was. I remember watching this house collapse in slow motion a little bit more every time I went by. One day the shutters fell off. One day the last remaining bit of chimney collapsed into the yard. I remember early one summer I walked by and the entire roof had caved in and the walls of the place were standing there alone looking silly and a little naked. And I was a kid, so I didn't know anything about foreclosure or bankruptcy or unexecuted wills. To me... I just kept thinking what a shame it was. What a waste. This was a house. It was a home. Somebody cared about this once. They had to have. And if someone cared now, just a little bit, if anybody showed even a scrap of interest, this wouldn't be happening. This house wouldn't be collapsing into nothing. But people either couldn't or wouldn't or didn't care. So the house on the corner caved in on itself. A little more every day until there was nothing left. When he delivers his declaration of war to the French government, the German ambassador slips a private note to the prime minister. It reads, This is the suicide of Europe. Britain gives Germany four hours to answer his ultimatum. When that time passes and no response comes, the two nations are at war. The stage is set for one of the bloodiest conflicts in human history. 
The die being cast and the decision made, Edward Gray takes one last look out at St. James Park. The lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. Um, but it is, it's definitely something that I know I've thought about since I've been back, and I know a lot of my friends um, with multiple deployments have, have thought about is this idea of, what, I mean, how do you, how do you think of a shared humanity and also um, prosecute a conflict, which is in itself a inhumane thing to do. Um, and I think that's something that as military personnel, uh, we, we kind of either are, are always wrestling with or shoving off because it's a very uncomfortable question and sometimes there's no clear answer. So uh, it's just you know, better to, to put it in the back of your mind rather than let it consume you. Kelly and Zara fight over the French 75 for a living, but that doesn't make them enemies. In fact, by everything that I can tell, it makes them even better friends than before. They're evidence that there is such a thing as a good fight, but it's not an easy mark to hit. It involves patience and understanding and empathy and humor. It takes respecting the humanity of the person in front of you, whether they're across the table or on the other side of a battlefield. It'll be 1918 by the time the guns fall silent. 19 million people will have died. The treaty signed one year later in Versailles will have very little patience, understanding, or empathy. Its aim will be to punish the losers rather than heal the wounds. And since you're already listening to this podcast, and since I'm just not that cliche of a writer, I won't waste our time here pointing out what happens to people who don't learn from history. I'll just say that it looks about the same as people who can't listen to one another. This episode of Back Bar was researched, written, and directed by me, Greg Benson. Keegan Cassidy and I produced while Ryan Laney scored, edited, and mixed our show. You can find his work at ryanlaneymusic.com. Back Bar is powered by Simplecast. Many, many thanks to our fantastic guests today, Kelly Rivers, Zara Bates, and Angry Staff Officer. Kelly and Zara work for Sipsmith Gin and Cavassier Cognac, respectively, which are both delicious, so if you weren't sure which side you ended up on today, at least you don't have to choose. Angry Staff Officer is an army blogger and the co-host of the War Stories podcast. You can find him at angrystaffofficer.com. A big thanks as well to our killer cast. Liberty Baverstock played Margot Asquith. Elliot Kashner played Gavrilo Princep. Colin Connor played Conrad von Hetzendorf. Nick Martin was Richard von Stork. Chris Stinson was Edward Gray. And our very own Keegan Cassidy was Kaiser Wilhelm II. Thank you so much for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
Follow me on Instagram at 100proofgreg. That's 100 with numbers, not letters. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. HRN is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Do you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, like, say, this one right here. Tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Tune in in two weeks when we go sorting through the rubble of prohibition with a little help from the most well-designed mediocrity on the planet. That's in two weeks for more on history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. Cheers. Cheers.